everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Exodus. And this week we find ourselves in Parashah, or portion, uh, Beshelach. Beshelach means when he sent. And this is when Pharaoh sent the Israelites out of Egypt. He'd finally had enough. Uh, the firstborn have died, and so he not only releases the Israelites, he sends them out, thrusts them out of the land. Now, this is a picture, of course, of when we come to faith, when we begin to experience God's salvation and recognize Yeshua as our Messiah and our Savior. And, uh, and through Yeshua's body and blood, our Passover lamb, we are thrust out of the way we used to live, and we must enter into a new way of life. So, Beshelach, when he sent out. Now, Whenever you think of this portion, immediately what needs to come to mind is this. The portion begins with a war, a battle, and it ends with a battle. But the two battles could not be more different. The first battle is the battle of God against Pharaoh's armies. And you know the story so well. As they went across the Red Sea, God closed up the waters on the Egyptian cavalry, and the Israelites saw the dead bodies of the soldiers washed up on the shore. God told the people through Moses, don't be afraid, be still, and behold the salvation of Adonai. In other words, there's nothing here for you to do except to walk. Just go on across the sea, on the dry land. I'll take care of the enemy. But when you get to the end of the portion, Amalek attacks. And this time, (coughs) excuse me, God is not the one who does the fighting. It's Joshua, and it's the first time Joshua is mentioned in the Bible. Joshua gets the men together, and they do the fighting against Amalek. So there is a battle in our lives that God fights, and we're to be still, not be afraid. Just be quiet, be still, and walk. But then there's a battle God requires us to fight. And I've taught on this many times in the past. I encourage you, if you're not familiar with those teachings, go back and listen to one of them. And uh, you'll find out that when it comes to our enemy, Satan, God says, he's mine, I'll take care of it. All you have to do is just turn your back, walk away. And um, God says, I'll deal with him. But when it comes to Amalek, Amalek means people of licking up. Everything about Amalek, whenever you see Amalek in Scripture, it represents the flesh the flesh that is unyielded to God. And what's so interesting is when you read at the end of the Torah portion, God says that he's going to erase the memory of Amalek from the heavens, from the earth. It's going to be gone. But then he says, but I will maintain a war against Amalek forever. And it's a very strange thing that God says, that he's going to eradicate Amalek's memory. But in the meantime, we fight him forever. This is your enemy now. And if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of Amalek. But if you do not walk in the spirit, Amalek rises up and says, here, I'll lead you. So this is our ongoing warfare against the flesh. Now, one day we get new bodies and Amalek's memory will be erased. But until then, as long as we're walking in this world, then uh, Amalek is enemy number one in our lives. So, I just want to leave you with that. Now, this Torah portion 
makes a beautiful menorah pattern. You've got the battle at the beginning, and you have the battle at the end. Right in the middle, you've got the crossing of the Red Sea. It's, it's a perfect uh, dividing point between the first and second half of the portion. And if you recall, um, when the people left Egypt, they were eating matzah, unleavened bread. But after they crossed the Red Sea, God began to provide them bread from heaven, manna. So matzah before the crossing, and manna afterwards, and they ate manna for 40 years. Now, these two breads could not be more different. One is man-made from things that grow out of the earth, but manna says it's something that came from heaven, the heavenly bread. And Yeshua comments on this in John's Gospel. But there's one thing that matzah and manna have in common. And I asked you this in the Thursday update. So how did you do? Did you get the right answer? The right answer is this. They were both unleavened. Matzah is unleavened bread. And of course, the manna from heaven did not have leaven in it either because it came from heaven. Uh, Leaven is always a picture of sin. This does not mean it's wrong to have yeast in your bread. But we need to understand what it represents. And... um, It represents sin consistently through the scriptures. So they were both unleavened bread. Now, a a book that I've really enjoyed uh, is a book by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. It's called Covenant and Conversation. And there are five volumes of this, one on each of the books of the Torah. And this one is on the book of Exodus. And Sachs just passed away a little over a year ago, November of 2020. And he was a, a brilliant and a godly man. And his writing is, is, is just superb. He he's an, was an excellent writer and thinker, very personable, and someone who loved God with all of his heart and soul and strength. And uh, so I encourage you to watch videos by Rabbi Sachs, and uh, this is a great book. If you want to, something that will give you uh, something to think about as you go through the Torah, this set of books is wonderful. So I bring that up because I want to quote uh, a section from his commentary on Vashalak, because he also talks about how there's a war at the beginning, and there's another war at the end of the portion. But this is what he says. He says, one of the most remarkable features of Judaism in this respect, it is supreme among religious faiths, is its call to human responsibility. Now, if I were to give Beshalak a name, a subtitle, it would be learning to live in two realms. Learning to live in two realms. As long as you are in Egypt, all you have to worry about is the physical realm. You're a slave. All you have to worry about is making your bricks for Pharaoh. But when God sets you free, you become a servant of his. And now you have to learn to do something different. You need to learn to be sensitive to the spiritual, which we'll talk about more in a moment. But also continue to walk in the physical world. You still need to eat, make a living. You still need to raise your children. You still need to work. It's part of life in this world. But it's not the only part of this world. It's just simply the outer part, but there's an inner life that is something we must learn to grasp and to walk in. And if we learn to walk in the spirit, then we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh and we won't be enslaved to Amalek. So we need to learn to walk in these two realms. I'll continue with the quote now. God wants us to fight our own battles. 
This is not abandonment. It does not mean, God forbid, that we are alone. God is with us whenever and wherever we are with him. Quote, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Unquote. That's Psalm 23, verse 4. What it means is that God calls on us to exercise these qualities, confidence, courage, choice, imagination, determination, and will. These things which allow us to reach our full stature as beings in the image of God. That is so important. The scriptures want, to, want us to restore God's image within us. This is what Yeshua, our Messiah, wants for us. And for us to truly bear the image of God, we have to live lives like his. And he is a God who takes initiative, who exercises free will and courage and determination. He's a God who, who does things. And he calls upon us to do things. And if you're a parent, your little children are so utterly dependent upon you when they're little. But what is your goal? For them to always be utterly and completely dependent upon you? You always want a deep relationship with them. You always want them to come to you in a time of need and when they need counsel. They, he, he wants you, them, you want them to live in close fellowship with you, but you want to le- them to learn to become adults as well. And then you know that you've accomplished your mission. So there's this wonderful balance of developing deeper relationship with God, but also becoming more responsible and living a life that's pleasing to him. But let me continue. The book of Exodus teaches this lesson in the form of three narratives, and here are the three narratives. Three narratives of which the division of the Red Sea is the first. The others are the epiphany of God at Mount Sinai and later in the tabernacle. And the first and second tablets Moses brings down from the mountain. In all three cases, we have a double narrative, a before and after. In each, the first is an act performed entirely by God. And that's what you see on the left. These come first. The death of the Egyptians, the revelation at Sinai, and then God giving the first set of tablets to Moses. The second involves partnership. between God and human beings, the battle against the Amalekites, the construction of the tabernacle, and the second tablets carved by Moses and inscribed by God. If you recall, the first set of tablets, God carved them out and inscribed them. The second set, God says, Moses, you carve them out, then I will engrave on them again the words I put on the first set. The difference is immense. In the first of each pair of events, what is evident is the power of God and the passivity of man. But in the second, what counts is the will of God internalized by man. God is transformed from doer to teacher. From doer to teacher. In the first set on the left, God does everything. But in the set on the right... God is teacher, 
and we cooperate. He says, okay, now you do. In the process, human beings are transformed from dependency to interdependency. Now, it's not from dependency to independency. That's not what it is. We're always dependent upon God. But interdependency, we depend upon him, but it's like he's saying, but I'm depending on you to accomplish a mission in the world. I'm inviting you to become a partner with me in changing this place, in restoring the Garden of Eden, in restoring relationships, in restoring uh, people's souls. And uh, he says, I've got a mission for you. I'm depending on you. You always depend on me. But I've got work for you to do. We're going to work together. There are, are two extremes that I've seen in people's lives. This total independency of God. And on the other hand, total reliance like a baby who won't do anything for himself. And there's this balance where God is our teacher, as our father is our teacher. And he wants us to have this relationship where we grow. We begin to take on more responsibilities, more self-control and more obedience to his commandments. Let me read a little bit more. I hadn't planned to, but I think I will. This is the astonishing message contained within a single Hebrew word, the word eved, which can mean either servant or slave. Eved in Hebrew can mean a servant or a slave. Someone you own or someone you pay. Someone who's indentured to you and and is working off a debt. In Egypt, the Israelites were Pharaoh's avadim. They were his slaves. Leaving Egypt, they became God's avadim, his servants. The difference, however, is no mere change of masters. The slave of a human being is one who lacks freedom. The servant of God is one who is called to freedom, a specific kind of freedom, namely one that respects the freedom of others and the integrity of the created world. At the heart of the Hebrew Bible is a specific view of humanity set out in the first chapters of Genesis. Human beings are not incurably evil, tainted by original sin, nor are we inescapably good. Instead, we're defined by the ability to choose. If we choose well, we are a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8 says. If we choose badly, we are lower and worse than the beasts. So, good stuff. And that kind of sets the tone for how I want us to approach this portion of Beshalak. That this is a a portion of transition. Transitioning from slaves to Pharaoh where our free wills have very little effect. To transitions to being God's children, his servants, and being his students, and learning to grow up and exercise free will responsibly, and as free human beings. So, let's get started. Bishalak begins in Exodus 13, verses, uh, verse 17, and we'll just read the first couple opening verses. It happened when Pharaoh Bishalak, when he sent out to the people, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, because it was near. For God said, perhaps the people will reconsider when they see a war, and they will return to Egypt. So God turned the people toward the way of the wilderness to the Sea of Reeds. The children of Israel were armed when they went up from Egypt. 
Here's the very first lesson. This encapsulates everything God wants to teach here in this portion. God did something utterly, completely illogical, something that no commander would do. In fact, as we will see, when Pharaoh learned the direction that the Israelites went, he thought, oh, they're all entangled, they're lost, they're, they're stupid. What group of people would ever go into the wilderness when all they have to do is continue going north right into the land of Canaan? And what we're learning from this is that what God does in our lives is not always logical. He is not a slave of human reasoning when often we are slaves. And we need to learn that what God will often ask us to do is not the same thing that our logic would dictate to us because God's ways are higher than our ways. And if we can learn to set our human reasoning off to the side, just put it aside, and when we realize this doesn't seem like a logical thing to do, but I know clearly what God said, you do what God said. And then eventually your reasoning and understanding will catch up to obedience to what God has spoken. But so many times in Scripture, what God does or what he orders us to do is utterly illogical. What we tend to do is when God gives us instructions and they're illogical to us, then we think, oh, well, I didn't hear God right, or that's not what God said. It was communicated wrongly because God would never, ever ask me to do something so illogical as this. But he does all the time. That's what requires faith. So, it, it, and also it says um, that the children of Israel went up armed. Now, that word armed is very uh, interesting. It's the word chamushim, chamushim. And um, you might have it in your translation, went up a raid, like a raid for battle, which is hard for me to, to believe because I think when they were leaving Egypt, they just went out like a mob. Let's get out of here as long as Egypt's in the rearview mirror and we're going out. That's all that matters. I don't think they were all that arrayed when they left. But uh, Hamushim is uh, best translated armed. They went out with weapons. But those of you who know Hebrew know that the word chamash is the word for five. Uh, chamashim is the word that means fives, plural, and is translated as 50. But it's still a very odd word, and translators wrestle with this word. But you know, when you read the Torah in Hebrew and you come across this word chamashim, the thing that's always going to be conjured up is a comish. A comish. This is a comish. This is called the Hirsch Chomish. Chomish meaning five. And in Hebrew underneath is Chomoshe Chumshi Torah, the five fifths of the Torah. And um, the book that I read out of each week is also a comish. And it's got the same words in Hebrew here, and you can't see it very well, but it says komish. I think you can see it better on the, the binding. Komish. So when you read it in Hebrew and you see the word komish, you rightly think of the Torah. And I think God was uh, using a little sense of humor here and giving us readers who uh, are reading this after the Torah is given. We look at this and think, you know, when God sets us free from slavery, 
He gives us a weapon. His weapon is this Torah. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And uh, so he's, I think he's, I think he's planting a little hint, something sub- suggest- suggestive there. So we realize our weapons are not carnal weapons. They're spiritual weapons. And when Yeshua was tempted by the enemy, what was his weapon? He quoted the Chomish. He quoted the Torah, uh, specifically the book of Deuteronomy. And, uh, and that's how he defeated Satan's temptations. So, it's just something to keep in mind. Um, let me go back to manna for just a moment. Um, manna is also a picture of God's word, his heavenly word. It's a picture of Messiah, who's the word made flesh. And so God's word is a weapon. In fact, he's going to lead the Israelites to Mount Horeb, or Chorev, as it's pronounced in Hebrew. And the word Chorev means sword. He's leading them to Mount Sword, so he can give them the Chumash, and they went up armed, Chumashim, and he's going to give them a spiritual weapon. But the word of God is also our food. We don't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Maybe this will help us understand what it means in Revelation when it shows, uh, depicts Messiah uh, invading the earth, coming with that army on horses, and says from his mouth proceeds a, a double-edged sword. His speech and food are one and the same. Just a thought, I don't know. But when it talks about manna, it's interesting. It describes it in our portion as being thin. And the Hebrew word there is dak, thin, almost insubstantial. Dak is the same word that's used back in Genesis, describing uh, the cows that came up out of the Nile River that were thin and emaciated, and they ate the, uh, the, the robust and and the fat cows, and the, and the thin ears of corn that came up, dock, thin, almost nothing. And when you keep that in mind, it reminds me of the passage over in Kings, I think it's Second Kings, where Elijah flees to the mountain, he's in the cave, and then there's the earthquake, and there's the fire, and there's the wind, and, and, but it says God wasn't in those things. And then he heard a still, small voice that Still small is the word domomadaka. Domomadaka, a thin whisper, is the best way to translate it. When God speaks, and the things God does spiritually in the world seem very thin and very insubstantial. But what I have discovered is things that are mighty in the spiritual realm take up very little space in the physical. And things that are insignificant in the spiritual realm take up a lot of space in the physical. So we shouldn't be impressed by bigness in this world because if something invests its essence in physical size, that means it hasn't invested much in spiritual, uh, spiritual value, spiritual size. God uses small things, foolish things, to accomplish his great will in this world. So something to think about. Now if we go on over to uh, chapter uh, 14, and let's pick it up in verse 11. 
And as you know, they, they come down to the shore of the Red Sea, so there's the water there. Then they look up, uh-oh, here comes Pharaoh with his chariots. And we have to realize that chariots were the super weapon of the ancient realm. They were like uh, uh, tanks in modern warfare. And if you had chariots, there's just simply no way to be defeated. Uh, unless the other army has chariots, and then you're on equal ground. But here's the Israelites. They have some weapons, some swords and pitchforks, maybe. But there's the water on one side and the Egyptian cavalry on the other. They're between a rock and a hard place. But now God has been leading them by this pillar of cloud. And he's been a light to them at night, and this cloud leading them by day. And so he's, his presence is right there. So how could they possibly doubt they're supposed to, they're where they're supposed to be? And yet they did. And this is what we find. When you read in chapter 14, verse 10, it says, and the beginning of 11, it says, so the sons of Israel cried out to Adonai, and that's where it should have stopped. They should have stopped right there. Cry out to Adonai and then stop. But they didn't stop. They cried out to Adonai, then they said to Moses, and boy, did they pour out the vitriol on Moses. We tend to do the same thing when we're at a place where we are experiencing great fear, hopelessness. We don't see any way out of our situation. We'll cry out to God, but then we'll complain about somebody. Fear causes us to forget the spiritual. Fear causes us to forget God. Fear also makes us angry and and the sages say that the angry man has no God. And when you look at what the Israelites are about to say here, it's like God didn't even exist. Even though they can look over and there was the cloud of his presence right there. But they just forgot everything God had done. They forgot even what their eyes could see. And they complained against Moses. Yeah, when we are disappointed in what God has done, we look for a human being or some kind of physical circumstance to place all the blame on. We forget about the spiritual realm and everything around us concretizes into strictly physical stuff. And we have to blame that. We have to blame someone. So what did they say? Here's what they said. There are four major complaints. And these, these labels I put in green, I... I almost didn't put them on it at all because you can, you can argue about which one is the best label to put on it or if we should label them. But there are four specific things that they said. First, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? This is just pure mockery because Egypt basically was, was <laughs> the Lego land of graves. It was just a place that was filled with graves, whether they're pyramids or, or smaller pyramids or a sphinx or, or whatever else. Almost everything they built was some kind of a tomb. It was filled with graves. So they're mocking, oh, there weren't enough graves in Egypt. Do you want to bring us out here so we can die and bury us? So they have this mocking tone. And, and look what they're saying to him. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away? 
God is nowhere on their radar now. It's all Moses' fault. They've forgotten the plagues. They'd forgotten the splitting of the Red Sea. They'd forgotten, and there it was. There was the column of, 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 of cloud right there, of God's presence. But all of that went away. Fear makes us forget everything that's true. Fear makes us forgetful. And it also makes us kind of blind and stupid as well. This is why fear is a tremendous enemy, and it's illegal for the believer. If you're fearful, you can't be believing. I, I know that generally you're a believer, but the moment you start fearing, you're not a believer anymore. You've forgotten the one you claim to believe in, and you've forgotten his promises. So here they put all the blame squarely on Moses. You're the one who did this. And you've taken us away to die in the wilderness. Now, this I find very interesting because, you see, it's going to be their fear that's going to cause them to die in the wilderness. It's the same attitude you see modeled here that they model again later on when they had no excuse to be fearful. But they were fearful, and God said, okay, you're going to spend the next 40 years wandering in this wilderness, and you're going to die here. They're going to die in the wilderness because they never corrected this bad behavior, this faithless, cowardly behavior. We have to work on this, folks. And God has given us everything we need to conquer fear in our lives. The question is, are we choosing to conquer it? Are we choosing to build our faith and walk in true loyalty to God. And they're talking about dying. We have to realize there are things a lot worse than death. And we're all going to die. But God gives us this incredible honor. We can choose our death. We can choose to die now to my way of doing things. Die now to my fears. And when you begin to realize, I am crucified with Messiah, I'm crucified with Messiah. When I realize I'm really a dead man, nevertheless I live, but this, this life I live now, I live in, by faith in him. In other words, if you can learn to program your mind to think of yourself as dead, then when people belittle you, they don't treat you right, they hurt your feelings. It's like, how much of that does a corpse experience? Does a corpse experience embarrassment and shame? Mm -mm. We need to realize that we are dead to the old life, just as these people need to realize they were dead to slavery, to Egypt. We need to learn an entirely new way to live. And all of us should have died back there. But our life's been preserved. So I'm not a, a slave of Pharaoh anymore. I'm a servant to God. He has bought me with a price. I'm not my own anymore. And if we could begin to consider ourselves dead, in the best sense of the word, then we're really free. We're truly free. You're free from anything that anybody can do to you. It's fear of death that causes us to sin and disobey. We're not afraid of death anymore. You're truly free. 
Well, what else did they say? Second thing they said, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Oh my goodness, they were such a hurry to get out of Egypt themselves, but now it's all, it's all on Moses. Now, what it says in the Hebrew is not what have you done, but what is this that you have done? What is this? And I wish I had typed it out with a, a more accurate translation. What is this that you have done? And, um, and again, they, he set them free is what he has done. He took them out of Egypt, what they wanted to do. And all of a sudden, Egypt became so attractive. I am amazed at the capacity of people to one day talk about how horrible their life was in sin or how horrible the situation was before in a particular relationship. God sets them free and they look back, oh, how horrible that was. But something comes along causes a little confusion, tests their faith, and they become fearful, and they run right back to it like a dog to its vomit. And here the people regret leaving Egypt, where they would have died as miserable slaves to Pharaoh, making bricks for his treasure houses. We're so fickle, and we do the exact same thing. But they're demonstrating hatred towards Moses. What have you done to us? Third thing, ridicule. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Well, when did they actually say that? I guess they kind of implied it at moments, but uh, they forget the truth and they start remembering things that didn't happen. But we see here that, as I said, fear makes us slaves. Fear makes us regress. It makes us go backwards to the ugly past. And fear also makes us weak. They become completely weak. This is why fear is such a horrible enemy. Such a horrible enemy. It's something we must conquer. And then the fourth thing they said, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But like I said, they're all going to die in the wilderness because they never corrected this attitude. And it would not have been better for them to be slaves in Egypt. If that had been better for them, God would have left them there. But there are things worse than death. There are things worse than death. And slavery is one of those things. Fear limits our vision. Fear makes us stupid. And the people certainly are demonstrating some stupidity and foolishness here. But all their complaints, you notice, are directed toward who? God? Because God's the one who made all this happen. No, they don't complain against God. They complain against Moses. But in doing so, they're actually complaining against God. Because complaints against godly authority are complaints against God himself. And there are times later in the Torah where Moses says their, their, their complaints aren't against us. They're really complaining and bad-mouthing God. Now, godly authorities are not perfect authorities. They're not perfect human beings. No human beings are. 
But if God has placed an authority in your life to speak his word to you, then as flawed as that authority may be, when you rebel against what they say, you're rebelling against the one who sent the message through them. And this is foolish, yet we all do it. We all have done it, we'll probably all do it again. But we need to correct this. We need to work on this. And I can see that the messenger is flawed, unfortunately. But set the messenger aside for a moment and listen to the message. What is the message the messenger bears? And if that message is coming from God, then to disobey the messenger is to disobey God. And too many times we look at the flaws of the messenger and think, therefore the message is flawed, God did not speak it. But I defy you to find the perfect messenger that you will accept and say, oh, okay, well, this is the word of God. If we don't learn to discern this, then what will happen is when the Antichrist does come, says he's going to deceive many, even the elect, because he will appear as a perfect messenger of God. Because he seems like a perfect messenger, people will embrace his message, even though it did not come from God at all. So we need to learn to discern the message in spite of flawed messengers. So let's go on down to verse 30. You know what happens. And uh, God sends the, the great wind and, and uh, the chariot wheels come off and and they see the dead bodies of the Egyptians on the seashore. When you get down to the last couple of verses of the chapter, chapter 14, verse 30, says, On that day, on that day, Adonai saved Israel from the hand of Egypt. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great hand that Adonai inflicted upon Egypt. And the people revered Adonai. And they had faith in Adonai and in Moses' his servant. This translation on the screen is a little different. Thus Adonai saved Israel on that day. And it's that day that I want us to focus on. Because I would have thought that it was back when the Passover lamb was sacrificed and God slew the firstborn of Egypt and it caused Pharaoh's heart finally to to relinquish and let the people go and drive them out. I would have thought on that day, God had saved the Israelites. But didn't say that back on the day of Passover. It's not until this moment when the enemy is utterly destroyed that he says, on that day. And this is a pattern that holds true even through the book of Revelation. Because when you get to the book of Revelation, um, you see these different judgments and things happening, these things transpire, and finally we get to Revelation 12. It talks about this great war that takes place in the heavenly realm. And Michael and his angels cast out Satan and his angels. They're cast to the earth. And then look what it says, Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah have come. Now, not then, not 2,000 years ago, even though when Yeshua was on the cross, he said it is finished, which can mean paid in full or brought to completion, because his work 
for his first coming was completely finished. There was nothing left to do. But salvation was just getting started. The saving of souls was just beginning to, to get underway and pick up momentum. But it's not to Revelation 12 when Satan, the enemy, is destroyed and cast, I should, should say destroyed, but cast out of heaven. That's when it can say, now salvation has come. Now salvation's reached a completion point. You know, there's a, uh, an interesting passage over in Isaiah. It's in um, verse, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, which I think parallels this day in Revelation. When the world will look at the enemy, and it says, those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the guy who made the earth tremble? who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. This is him. This is what we are afraid of. And it'll be like the Israelites seeing the bodies of the Egyptians washed on the seashore. And they're just, well, they're dead. They're just guys. Nothing to fear now. And that's what happens here in Revelation 12 as well. A lot of believers have the misunderstanding that Satan was cast out of heaven some time back. Not true. Because even as it says here in this passage, um, and the authority of his Messiah have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is still right there in the heavenly realm accusing us before God on his throne. And Yeshua is there as our paraclete, our public defender, says, and they have conquered him. Now, notice the two things. First, by the blood of the Lamb. Now, that's Yeshua, what he did. He did that all on his own. But there's a second thing, and by the word of their testimony. Ah, this is our responsibility. It goes back to Sax's uh, point that we cooperate with God. God has done his part where we're completely passive, and that's what God accomplished through Yeshua on the cross. But he says, but now I want you to participate in having victory over this enemy, and your part is the word of your testimony, the way you live your life out, because you're going to proclaim the truth of what Messiah did, not just with words, but in your lives. For they loved not their lives unto death. In other words, they loved God more than they feared death. That's very important. So, Yeshua did say that he saw Satan falling from heaven. Well, that's because Yeshua was, was casting out demons and so on, and Satan all of a sudden got distracted. Thought, oh, excuse me, I need to get down here and deal with some things. And he came down to <laughs> cause more trouble. But he wasn't cast out of heaven yet. That's still a future event. Revelation chapter 12. And then we come to the Song of the Sea. They cross the Red Sea. They've seen the, the, the soldiers dead on the shore. And um, so we're not going to discuss the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15 uh, because in your groups, in place of a psalm to discuss this week, uh, you discuss this. If you did things right, you discussed this beautiful poem, uh, The Song of the Sea, a wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. So we're going to go on to right past The Song of the Sea. So let's pick it up 
in chapter 15, verse 22. They finish singing the song of the sea, and right away, there's a test. Test number one. Verse 22, Moses caused Israel to journey from the Sea of Reeds, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They went for a three-day period in the wilderness, but they did not find water. They came to Mara. Mara means bitter. It's the root for Mary or Miriam, which means bitter. But they could not drink the waters of Mara because they were bitter. Therefore, they named it Mara, bitter. The people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he, Moses, cried out to Adonai, and Adonai showed him a tree. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There he established for the nation a decree and an ordinance, and there he tested it. He said, If you hearken diligently to the voice of Adonai your God and do what is just in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and observe all his decrees, then any of the diseases I placed upon Egypt I will not bring upon you, for I am Adonai Rophe, I am Adonai your healer. Then they arrived at Elim, where they were twelve springs of water, seventy date palms. They encamped there by the water. Oh, but they just held out a little while longer. There were springs of water right around the corner. But no, they had to start complaining because they had the chance. Now, what's interesting about this is that every translation mistranslates this word. Our translations say that he cried out to Adonai, and Adonai showed him a tree. That's not what it says in the Hebrew. The word there in Hebrew is the word vayarehu, which means and taught him. And Adonai taught him a tree, not showed him. For this to be the word showed, there would need to be the letter aleph right here, stuck in the middle. Then is to see. Then vayarehu would mean to see. This word sounds the same, but this is the word that means he taught, and this word, exactly the way you see it here, is found other places in Scripture. Always means he taught. But since that doesn't seem to make sense to the translators, they don't translate it right. They use their human reasoning to mistranslate it, even though it says God taught him a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Well, what is this all about? It doesn't mean he taught him a tree. Well, it says that God made the waters sweet. There's the word matak, which means sweet. That's the word used here. Now, if you take the first letter and last letter, they spell the word mak. Mak means putrid. Putrid. Something rotten, something you want to be close to. But this letter in the middle is the letter... Sorry, let me just erase that. Is the letter Tav. It's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And notice the shape. It's the shape that would have been formed when the Israelites put blood on the two doorposts and the lintel. Up, across, and down. And this letter, its name, Tav, means cross. And the rabbis for thousands of years have said that its shape represents a cross. 
And I've told you before, they don't like to publicize this too much because they're afraid of what people like us will do with that information. But that's what it means. So what happens when you take what is putrid and you put a cross in the middle of it? It becomes matak, sweet. When we learn to apply the cross to better situations, they become sweet. We tend to think that the best way to deal with a better situation is to fix it or run away from it. But if we're true disciples of Messiah, we learn to apply the cross to it. And the cross itself is a bitter thing, isn't it? In fact, Rabbi Nachman, he's known as the Ramban, and he lived several hundred years ago, was not messianic to my knowledge, says something that's utterly brilliant. says, God instructed and taught Moses about the way of the Holy One, blessed is he, namely, that he sweetens bitter things with something that is itself bitter. Because Jewish tradition has taught that the tree itself was a bitter-tasting tree. So, again, it's totally illogical. If you want to make bitter water sweet, you take something bitter and throw it in the water and just make it more bitter. But it didn't. It made the water sweet. They could drink the water. It's a powerful principle here. And I don't have time today to talk about what it means to apply the cross to situations. But you know, Yeshua said, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself. And that is the principle of the cross, to deny yourself, to deny yourself, to deny your right to yourself, but to take up your cross daily and follow me. And when we take up our cross daily, we learn how to apply the cross, which first means I don't own me. And even though Messiah and the cross looked like an utter total failure, it was the greatest work of grace and salvation and transformation ever, ever done on this planet. And so we apply the cross to situations, and then we wait, and then we experience a resurrection of some sort. Because there can't be a resurrection life until there's a death. And so many times... The secret to real joy and freedom and living a victorious life is to learn how to apply the cross to our situations. Deny your right to yourself. Put your ideas of how things should be to death. And then wait. Wait on the Lord to do what he's going to do. He'll do it. And things become very sweet. So, let's move on. I was captured by this, and I see our time's getting slow, so I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. I want to make sure that you, you, you really focus on this. So he showed him a tree, threw it in the water, waters became sweet. Then it says there, right there at this first test, he, God, established a decree and an ordinance. I put the word rule here. You know, when it comes to decrees and statutes and ordinances, commandments, we have to kind of struggle to find the right English word to use. So whichever rule you want to use, or word you want to use, just be consistent. A decree and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Adonai your God and do what is right in his eyes, and 
He divides us into another couplet, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Adonai your healer. So let's look at this. The word for decree, he says, I want to establish a decree and a rule. The word for decree is the word chok. The word chok means something that is illogical. We'll discuss this more as we go through the Torah, as God gives his uh, chokim, his uh, illogical decrees. Uh, the rabbis always refer to the uh, the commandment concerning the red heifer is being a chok, something we don't understand at all, but we do it because God commanded it. So the decrees are things that are illogical. The rules, these are the mishpat, the mishpatim, usually translated judgments, but judgment sounds like something condemning. That's not what they are. In fact, when you get over a little further in Exodus up to chapter uh, 21, you come to a Torah portion called mishpatim. And it is a list of rules, of commandments that have to do mostly with human interaction. They're commandments that are very logical. Most societies derive these very same commandments, even though they don't have the Torah, because they're logical commandments. The Chokim, on the other hand, are not logical at all. So he says uh, that... If we listen diligently to God's voice and do what is right in his eyes. By the way, let me put this here. Faith is the word we have to apply because something's not logical, but we do it anyway because God said. That's called faith. That's faith obedience. But the Mishpah team, they're reasonable. And... I find a lot of believers, they'll obey the things in the Word that are reasonable to them, but they won't give the time of day to things that the Word commands if they're not reasonable. So what are they really doing? Are they truly serving God's Word with their lives? Or are they using His Word to simply support the things they want to do anyway, the things that look logical to them? It's a good question for you to think about. Now here's what else God says. He says, if you listen diligently to God's voice, now that's very important. We have to learn to recognize his voice. Yeshua said, my sheep hear my voice. A voice is a a, a living thing. It's an active thing. It's an immediate here and now thing. And do what is yashar. Yashar is the word for right. Uh, Yashar means straight. Do what is straight in his eyes. And then it gives another couplet over here. Give ear. Okay? Now here it's a listen. Listening is different from just giving ear to something. Sounds can go in my ear, but I don't listen. Here it says to listen diligently to God's voice. Here it says give ear to what? His commandments. Those commandments are things that are written down. They're things I can see on the page. So see the difference? Listen diligently to his voice. Can you hear it? Something the Israelites are having trouble doing, hearing God's voice. But also we need to give ear to his commandments. I can look right here. I can see his commandments, and an ear is a physical thing. The commandments are written physically on the page, and I can physically do them. 
they're beginning to see that everything on the left side, <clears throat> the left column, is spiritual. The things in the right column are physical. You know, the Pharisees were great at doing things in the right column, but they were dunces when it came to doing things in the left. Well, let's continue. continue. Listen, diligent to God's voice, do what is right in his eyes. What is right in his eyes? You know, you can obey a commandment, but not do what's right in his eyes. Because sometimes we can keep a commandment, but do it in a very legalistic way, and that's not right in his eyes. We need to do things and keep his commandments the way it's pleasing to him. Because his eyes are always upon us. Everything on this left column is something living, something that's spiritual, something that's very active and vibrant. But on the right hand, give ear to his commandments and guard, Shemar, to guard all of his, and look what it says, decrees. So we're, we're going back to this word. So everything here on the physical side is to lead us back to the spiritual. Everything that occurs in our physical lives is to point us to the physical, or to the spiritual. Everything in our physical lives are signposts to point us to life, to the inner world, the higher world. And I want to close with this. We're trying to build a life. We're trying to build a kingdom. And when you want to build, there are two things you have to have. One is what's called a plumb bob. And a plumb bob will always give you a vertical line. So you can build walls straight up and down. But you also need a level. A level will always give you a horizontal line. So when you build your courses of brick and stone, they're going to be completely horizontal. Here's pictures. Plumb bob and a level. A plumb bob is simply a weight that hangs from a string, and once that weight quits swinging around, that string is pointing directly toward the very center of the earth. It gives you a completely, total, totally vertical line. Even if the land is all tilted or whatever on a mountainside, that, that string, no matter how you look at it, is going to give you a completely totally, reliably vertical line. And a level is always going to provide a perfectly horizontal line. Now, in ancient Egypt, they didn't have bubble levels like the modern level you see here. What they had was something that looked like this. This has been something that the Jewish people have been very familiar with. And you see what it is. It's a combination of the plumb bob but what you see here is, if you can see right there, there's a vertical line. And when that string crosses that vertical line, they know they've got a level this way. And they've got the vertical this way. God says you have to hear his voice. That's that vertical relationship with him. You and him. But that level line... This is relationship with other people, the mishpatim. This is how you keep God's commandments in this world, how you relate to others in this world, life here. And you have to have both. You have to be able to hear his voice, but also study and keep his commandments. We have to do the two. One without the other 
You'll either have very level courses of brick, but your walls are going off and the thing's going to fall over. Or you'll be building the building straight up, but the bricks and the floors are all tilted. Everything slides to one side and the building falls over. You have to have both of these. You have to learn to live life in both realms. Because we're here to build a kingdom in obedience and cooperation with the great builder, the great stonemason, Messiah. So, here's some discussion questions. Is it possible for a believer to be more Satan-centered than God-centered? Because Israelites are always talking about Egypt, going back to Egypt. And it's like, <laughs> it's like Pharaoh is living rent-free in their brains. And I find a lot of believers are very Satan-centered. Not that they want to obey him, but they're just fixated on him. And everything happens in their lives. Oh, Satan made it happen. But is it possible for a believer to be more Satan-centered than God-centered? Number two, in what areas of your life is God asking you to be more responsible and cooperate with him instead of being so passive? Number three, can you think of examples in your own life when you complained against the authorities he established in your life? And who were you really complaining against? Think of some examples and share them with other people in your group uh, because if it's appropriate, because it might be a real encouragement to them. Describe how salvation is a process. People ask me, oh, when did you get saved? Or they'll say, now, when I got saved. And you know my answer when people ask me, when did you get saved? I say, 2,000 years ago. But (laughs) that always stirs up a conversation. The truth of the matter is, I am still being saved. Spiritually, I'm secure in my salvation through what Messiah accomplished on the cross. He accomplished it for the world. There's salvation that's done. But my soul, the way I think, the way I live, my mind, my will and emotions, still, it's still under construction. Salvation is still taking place. And many places in the Greek scriptures talk about how we are being saved. We as believers, we're still being saved. And every time I take wrong thinking or wrong emotions or wrong habits and I bring them alignment that part of my soul bringing out alignment with God's word and love, then that part of my soul is brought into the light. I'm still taking materials from the darkness and bringing them to the light, and my soul is being saved. Then, someday, I get a new body. And then, that's when I can say salvation is finally accomplished. So, there are verses that talk about how we will be saved, how we are being saved, and how we have been saved. Body, soul, spirit. It's a process. So, I guess I just answered your question for you, didn't I? But try to put it in your own words. And then number five, which are you better at? Hearing God's voice or following God's rules? And this should be a very interesting discussion question, probably the most important one of the five. Because some of you are going to be better at hearing His voice, but you're not very committed to following the rules. On the other hand, You might be really good at following what's in black and white, but you're hard of hearing. You're not hearing his voice. So discuss how you can improve in both of those areas. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, for this amazing Torah portion, Beshelech. And Lord, it is our story. 
It's a story of the battles you fight in our lives and the battles you call us to fight in our lives. And it's the battle of transitioning from someone who is carnal, totally physically oriented, to someone who hears your voice and becomes a spiritual man instead of a soulish one. Lord, help us to grow. Help us to arrive victoriously in the land of promise, the land of fruitfulness and victorious living. Make us the people you want us to be. And I pray that this Torah portion you will use today to help accomplish that. We ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen.